morning to each of you. It is good to be here with you. Enjoy the times we spend together. As I look at the events of Wellspring, I feel like we are fulfilling end-time prophecy. We are running hither and fro on the face of the earth, and the motion does not seem to cease. And this morning we have more people missing again, so I look forward to uh, having everybody uh, back together again. I'll make a comment on uh, what Marlon brought up with the Afghanistan war. Uh, further comment on Haiti. Those of you who know me <clears throat> know that I enjoy current events. <clears throat> I enjoy knowing what's happening in the world around us. I remember the beginning of the Afghanistan war, but I remember when the Soviet Union was fighting in Afghanistan. I think they were there for 10 years in the 80s, and they pulled out after not accomplishing what they thought they would accomplish. And one of the comments I remember in kind of a scoffing way from the Soviet Union towards the United States was, you all don't know what you're getting into. We just came out of that for 10 years, and you think you can go in and fix it. Now the United States has been there for 20. The circle back for me is political, geographical countries are not the answer to the world's problems. Never have been, never will. The kingdom of Jesus Christ has the answers. The only way you fix what's wrong with Afghanistan is to get Jesus and his message there and into the hearts of people. Unfortunately, the United States is becoming very quickly a post-Christian nation, just like Western Europe is. And the Bible Belt is much less of a Bible Belt than it used to be. We have the opportunity to demonstrate who Jesus is and what his effect is on our lives, what it should be on the lives of the believer. Some of you here have not been at Wellspring for very many years. And I don't know what your impression is of the preaching that happens here. Some churches that you would go to, you would have a very strong emphasis on practice. And most of the sermons that you would hear would revolve around, you need to do it this way. You hear some of that at Wellspring. But as I reflect on 20 plus years of preaching and about 20, how long is it now? This is going to be year 26 since the church started. Actually, it is over 26. In that time frame, I think one of the things you could say about Wellspring is that if anything, we have not accentuated that nearly to the level that many churches would and maybe that we should have. So one of the things that the leadership team has come back to is we've picked up the list of topics. You've heard this mentioned before, but there is a list of topics that we said we want to cover every two years. Well, guess what? The one that's on the list for me today hasn't been covered since 2015. So if you think we're stuck here, we're not. But it is an important topic that ought to be addressed more than it has been. 
when I was looking through my notes about when I last covered this, at first I couldn't find it, and I was somewhat um, dismayed by that because I have a folder on my computer for every year and the sermons in it, and I can search and find what I had preached on. It's there, and I just could not find this topic. And I was quite certain I had done it. When did you know it was buried in another series? And as I looked at that, it really was not as developed as I would like to develop it. So I'm going to give it a whirl this morning, uh, giving it a little more attention than than where it was uh, in 2015. And the verses that you see on the screen come from that series. And it had to do with being ambassadors for Christ and being representatives of Him. Uh, This, if my clicker will work, doesn't want to work. There we go. It was on another screen still. Uh, this is a summary from that, and it came from this whole idea of we're representing God, we're ambassadors for Christ, and I'd like to just quickly run down. This is a, I think this is a perfect backdrop for the topic we're going to look at, but we have to start with the greatest commandments, loving God, loving others, God's sovereign, He offers grace, and He deserves glory. When we have an idol, we make ourselves sovereign. We focus on our desires for our glory, and the, the point of what, part of the point of where we're going today is who gets the glory, and it should be God. That's a foundational thing that we looked at last time. People are glory thieves. Glory is due Almighty God. His kingdom is glorious. The devil wanted glory. He wanted to be equal to or greater than God, and certainly not subject to God. Our follow, fallen nature follows suit with that. We tend to want glory for ourselves. You go to the story of 1 Samuel 4.21. The Israelites were in battle, and they had taken the ark into battle, and the Philistines captured it, and the phrase that happened there in that story, as a baby was born and he was named Ichabod because the glory has departed. The presence of God had left. The glory of God was no longer with them. It was a terrible thing. God's glory had been uh, abused there. So ambassadors under authority, displaying the glory of God. That's the title of that message from 2 Corinthians 5. Just a couple other things before we jump into today's topic. Life is spiritual, not just physical. It is both. We are new creatures in Christ. We're ambassadors for Christ. And then here, as we come to the topic today, please remember these things. We are representatives of the king with the message of the kingdom, the mission of the king, and we are under the authority of the king. The kingdom of Jesus Christ, Jesus is our head, he is the head of the church, and we are to display his glory, not our own. So back once again, and now we're going to 1 Corinthians 11, and now you finally see what I'm going to talk about. That has to do with the woman's, uh, Christian woman's veiling. We are representatives, representatives of Christ, and that is a portion of it. I'd like for you to read with me uh, the verses on the screen. 
Uh, this is from the New King James Version, and we'll walk through this together. But first of all, the text, all together. Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is one and the same as if her head were shaved. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but the, is the glory of the man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, even so man also comes through woman, but all things are from God. Judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor the churches of God. As I'm reading that, I realize my notes don't even cover everything I wish I should say or could say. So we'll, if there's questions that come up after this, uh, I invite further discussion and interaction surrounding the text. I'd like to go uh, just start walking through. This is going to be fairly quick. I have a couple of segments that will take longer. Uh, but this particular segment is going to be shorter. I just want to do a quick walkthrough of what is being said in the, in the text. And the first one has to do with the statement, keep the tradition. I don't know how, what it is in your mind, but many times when you hear the word tradition in the context of Scripture, our minds go to a negative thing. It's not good. And we remember that Jesus took the Pharisees, the religious leaders, he took them to task for their tradition of men. The epistles also include warnings of that. But I'd like to show you a different side of that. There's a positive side, and this is one of them. There are traditions named in Scripture where it says you keep those. So really it comes down to there's two different kinds of traditions mentioned in the New Testament, the traditions of men and the apostolic tradition. Uh, teaching from the apostles 
And so what I'd like to do is just show you a couple of examples. There are numerous examples of this. This is only part of it. Here is uh, one. Right here, Colossians 2.8. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men. That is a recurring phrase when it is negative that should not be followed. It's a man thing. According to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. There's the difference. There are Christian traditions. There are things that are taught that we ought to follow. And here we have an example of that in 2 Thessalonians 2. It's actually mentioned here in verse 15 and in one other verse nearby. It says, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions that you were taught, the traditions that you were taught, whether by word or by epistle. If you think about that verse, it's actually fascinating. Paul is telling the Thessalonians, you keep what we told you to do plus what we wrote to you. And so it's like there's other things that the apostles were expecting the churches to do. We don't have a written record of them. Did they vary from church to church? Possibly. Uh, I personally think that they, they did. I think that there's other things that the churches did that we we don't have account of that in Scripture. But the thing I want to bring back to for today here is to remember there are the tradition that is talked about here is very positive. He says, remember, the, remember me in all things and keep the ordinances or the traditions as I have delivered them to you. And so what he's expressing here in 1 Corinthians 11 is one of those things. He's saying, keep this. And also in 2 Thessalonians, I don't have it on the screen, uh, but that same verbiage is used. It says, we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. He's saying separate yourselves from that. This held a lot of weight, those teachings. So maybe what we ought to do, instead of using the word tradition there for today, the teachings that honor Christ, that were given instruction by the apostles. The second thing I'd like to note, we'll bounce back to this a little bit later, but that is that this is God's design, it is not cultural. And I would take you to the beginning of the book of 1 Corinthians. Who's Paul writing to? Verse 1 says it's Paul, he's with uh, Sosthenes, and then he says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, and then he includes somebody else. He actually includes everybody else, including you and me. He says, with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This was not just a cultural thing to the people at Corinth. This whole letter was actually addressed to all of the churches of the time, and by extension, to the churches for all time. I'd like first to go to four basic principles that are described here in the text. And the first one is that God established a structure of authority. It's God, Christ, man, woman. 
And before anyone gets all uptight about what that means and that we need to have uh, people equal uh, valued properly, I'm just going to say I agree with that. All people are about equal value. How would you say, but why does he say that God is the head of Christ? Wasn't Jesus God? Of course he was. He was equal, but he was a different representation, a different expression of God. He was the, the God-man who lived on earth. The God-man could not be 100% same as Almighty God in the heavens. There was a different role that happened. In my mind, it's very similar. God created man, and this text talks about that. Uh, creation and what happened there was a part of this, of what he's describing. And he's just simply saying man came first, God gave man a role, and he created woman with a specific purpose, to assist the man, to be a helpmeet. Man was incomplete. We needed something else as men. God gave us women to complete what the man needed. He completed his creation. And it was after that he said it was very good. There was something missing. Does that mean that the woman is lesser? No, just different. Men and women have equal value, but different roles and functions. So what we're talking about here today is God has established in a structure of authority, and this is the way that it's demonstrated that we're in that structure of authority by what he teaches here today. So that was the first principle he establishes. The second is that each person in the line of authority gives glory or honor to the authority above it. In John 17, Christ gave glory to God the Father. In this text, in verse 7, man is the image and glory of God. Also in verse 7, woman is the glory of man. And in verse 15, the long hair is described as being the glory of the woman. In each of these situations, their own glory is not to be on display. They give glory to their authority. One of the things that's fascinated me, I've not done it, I've been challenged to do it, and that is to preach on this principle from the Old Testament. And if I did that, the way I would do it is I would go back and examine what happened when sin entered the world, what had to be covered, where's the glory, what's the glory that's shown, what's the glory that's covered, and why. And you would find that principle, this principle of revealed glory or shown glory uh, all through the Scripture, including the Old Testament. But remember the basic principle. We give glory to the person above us, not our own. So whatever glory I have, that all needs to come in subjection to Christ. Anything that's good out of this person goes to the honor and glory of God. It's not my own. Third principle, <coughs> man who is the glory of God is to become before God bareheaded. He is now covered by the blood of Christ and approaches the throne with confidence. Why God decided to do it this way, I, I don't even know all of the whys. I 
don't suppose they can know all of them. But it is, this is the first part of the principle, that is that man is to be bareheaded. I have a hat collection. It takes up too much room in my attic. I like hats. A number of years ago, as I studied and thought about this, I realized I was wearing a hat for reasons that I didn't think were biblically acceptable anymore. So you don't see me with a hat very much. I now mostly wear a hat for a weather garment. Why? Because I think it's in keeping with the principle on the screen and this one, that the woman, the glory of man, comes before God with her head covered. And to me, it felt like it was much more consistent that if the woman is to have her head covered and the man is to be bareheaded, I ought to join in that. And so my hats stay tucked away, and sometime they'll be disposed of, I guess. Uh, we'll see what happens with those. But woman, the glory of man becomes before God with her glory covered. Her hair is a glory, a thing of beauty for her. It's to be covered. She is also the glory of man. And man's glory is not to be elevated above the glory of God. And in recognition of this, man's glory, the woman, and her glory, the long hair, are to be covered. He specifically says it's to be covered when coming to God in prayer or prophecy, in times of worship and communing with God. Covering her hair symbolizes that she is in God's authority structure. She is honoring God and man by covering her glory. So one of the things that statement brings up is the statement of do this when praying or prophesying. Okay, so why do we wear... Why do our ladies wear something on their heads all the time? For me, it's kind of simple. And that is that the biblical principle is we do not come before God. Ladies don't come before God to pray. They don't prophesy. They don't teach other women. They don't express the honor and glory of God without their heads covered. It's inappropriate. So how much of the day should you be in communion with God, ready to pray? We're admonished to pray without ceasing. If that's the, if that's the principle, and I'm working, or I, I'm putting myself in the uh, place of the woman here from her perspective, I'm to pray, do I want to run find something to cover my head? Why not just wear it? Why not live in an attitude of prayer? There's another thing that we'll get to. It's not only just for that. The scripture also teaches it's because of the angels. There is a statement that is made by wearing it. And so that's why in our practice it goes beyond just the times that we're praying or prophesying. There are other things that come into play there. I'm going to quickly run through a few things here. Is this symbolic or a physical covering? 
You can read ahead if you want. I'll get there. I didn't bring it on in, in sections on this slide. But I'd like to just say a couple things about that. When I look at Western Christianity, actually, let's just say all of Christianity around the globe, there have been three primary responses to this teaching. And within them, you'll find variations. But the one is that the veiling was cultural only to the Corinthians and not applicable today. That's very prevalent in Western culture. It's very prevalent all around us today. Another perspective was that the veiling is symbolic and the physical covering is not that important. And you see that in some of some churches that would have used to have been very similar to ours. If the veiling is only a symbol, then why does it matter what it is or how big it is? Uh, I suppose you could argue if it's a symbol, it does matter what it is. But in their minds, it's part of that progression of going away from the biblical teaching. One of the first steps of that is it just becomes a symbol and it becomes minimized. The third response has been that the veiling is symbolic and a physical covering, and that's where we are at Wellspring. That's our understanding of Scripture. It is both. It is not just a symbol, but it does symbolize something to the angels, and it is a significant physical covering. And I'd like to go to this statement because of the angels. Uh, that statement is a little bit ambiguous in that uh, it's a little unclear you could, it doesn't say exactly how does this, how do the angels interact with this. In fact, if you go to early church writings, this particular phrase doesn't get a lot of comment. I did find a couple of them, and they disagreed with each other. So I guess that's more uh, evidence that it's not 100% clear. But one of the, the perspectives that was given there, uh, which I believe to be correct, as I've studied it, as I've read Scripture, it makes sense this, to read it this way. And that is to say that the angels are primarily referring to, uh, to the spirit beings around us, both good and bad. The veiling is a visible sign to others that I am in God's authority structure. This is, a, uh, this is shown to both angels, demons, and to men. It's a visible sign with an identity statement with a specific spiritual meaning that I am on God's side, I identify with Him, I am in His authority and under His authority and doing it His way. Wearing the veiling is an intentional spiritual act, not fashion or simple something of convenience, whatever I can grab. The veiling should be worn unapologetically. And I would say that for people who decide that this is no longer a necessary thing for them to practice, this is one of the things that tends to happen, is the progression is that it becomes a problem for it to be distinct. And it's like they wear it, but apologetically. It's intended to blend in either with the hair or with culture. 
by virtue of what type of thing they put on their head and how it's worn. And it looks apologetic. If it is a sign to the angels, do you want there to be any question what your sign is? And I hope not. I would think we would want that to be very clear, that I am identifying with the Lord Christ, and I am His, and I want that to be known. I worked with a dear brother at uh, the Fair Play Wilderness Camp. He was an older man. Uh, some of you would know him, Harry Brenneman. He was a family worker. We got a new boy at camp, or somewhere in the placement process. He went to a very rough section of Columbia, South Carolina, uh, to visit the home. And uh, I don't remember the exact details of when this conversation happened, but at some point in that process, the social worker from the state who had referred the boy was talking about his home visit, and she said, so now you need to take a police escort when you go in there. And he said, okay. She said, yeah, it's really bad. You don't ever want to go in there without support. What his comment was to me, I don't think he told her this, is he just said, I kind of chuckled inside, and I just thought, that's fine. I'll just take Arlene with me, his wife. And he went into that very rough neighborhood as long as that boy was at camp and never had any problems. And one of the reasons he felt that was a very dark spiritual place. But he walked in there, and it was a very clear demonstration that they were on God's side. Because his wife was along, I'm sure because of his demeanor. It's one of the things, this is an aside, but I want to encourage you. We are commanded to rebuke the devil. But there's another piece of that that I think we as Christians need to live in. We need to live in that bubble surrounded by the presence of God so that even if we're not consciously rebuking the devil in his presence, there's just that thing there. And the glory of God is evident in our lives. His power is there. Evil spirit forces recognize that and they will flee. They cannot stand up to that. The other thing I want to talk about a little bit is historical documentation. I was amazed. I don't go to Wikipedia as a primary source because it's an open source thing, but in my searching, what I was looking for was I was trying to find a compilation of images of what is the history of this. So I was looking for images and text, and in the search, here comes Wikipedia. Oh, I wonder what they say because I don't view them as a... Uh, not particularly friendly to Christianity. Uh, anybody can put something there. What I found was a Catholic person had put a couple of paragraphs in that I found fascinating that were actually quite accurate. And I'd like to read this. Uh, this is well documented in history. Uh, I'm going to read part of this, then I'm going to make some further statements. Uh, actually, let's do this. You can see this on the screen already. This is a shock to many of us. 1,900 years of consistent understanding, universal throughout Christianity, all denominations and all cultures, the woman's head veiling was practiced. We think we're enlightened in Western Christianity. and Oh, you don't need to do that. 
The truth is it's going against 1,900 years of history. It's really a fairly recent phenomenon, uh, back to just a little bit before I was born, that that pushback came to its height and it was actually dropped in the mid-1900s. Now, it started before then. The dropping started earlier, but that's when it actually uh, was more of a cutoff. But listen to this. This is from an article on Wikipedia on the veil. In Western Europe and North America, from the arrival of Christianity to those lands to the start of the 20th century, meaning the early 1900s, women in most mainstream Christian denominations wore head coverings during church services, often in the form of a scarf, cap, veil, or hat. These included, and I find this list interesting, Many Anglican churches, Baptist, Catholic, Lutheran, Methodist, Presbyterian churches. In these denominations, the practice now continues only in isolated parishes where it is seen as a matter of etiquette, courtesy, tradition, or fashionable elegance. But by and large, in those traditions, it has been lost. He goes on to say, Christian veiling is still practiced especially among those who wear plain dress, such as conservative Quakers, many Anabaptists, including Mennonites, Hutterites, Old German Baptists, uh, Apostolic Christians, and Amish. Moravian females wear a lace head covering. Many holiness Christians who practice the doctrine of outward holiness also practice a head covering. And I will say that my experience in that is that that has changed. Uh, I don't know of uh, very many that do that. He also mentions, uh, and I don't even know how to pronounce this, so forgive me if this is wrong, but Lestadian Lutheran Church, the Plymouth Brethren, and the more conservative Scottish and Irish Presbyterian and Dutch Reformed Churches. So it, there's a smattering. The reason I'm reading all of that to you is I want you to know this is not just an Anabaptist thing. This is not, that's, that's what we've tended to see, but it's actually not the case. This is very broad-based. This has got many centuries of history, and even today, if you were to go into some of the Eastern Europe countries, you would find that Orthodox Christianity there or the Russian Baptist churches, they actually would function and believe very much like North American conservative Anabaptists. There would be a lot of similarities. So enough of that. That's Wikipedia, uh, and the, the source for that was a Catholic person. I found, uh, I have this name, let's see here. Here we go. Have any of you heard of Bishop Carlton MacLeod? Are any of you familiar with him? I only recently became familiar with him. Uh, Laverne and I were talking on Friday evening, and he, had, he said, you ought to listen to this. And... It's fascinating. He's from an AME church, uh, African Methodist Episcopal, and a very well-spoken minister. Their church had not been practicing this, but he, he presented 1 Corinthians 11 from the perspective that this is what we ought to be doing. And in that church setting, the congregation is pretty responsive. They're talking. They're back and forth. And... He kept commenting, my, it's quiet in here. The congregation was not at the point of where he was preaching. This is 2014, if I remember right, when the sermon was given. 
I find it fascinating that his struggle is very common to people. He went into studying that sermon not for a woman wearing a veiling. And he wrestled and wrestled with that over months before he presented it. And he said, the only way I can be honest with Scripture is to tell you what it says, even if you don't like it. And he did it in a very good way. Uh, it was fascinating. But you might find that sermon interesting. He would have some takes that wouldn't be 100% where I'm at. But the overall picture, he was presenting truth. David Berceau, uh, he has probably documented history that was about as good as anybody in recent times. And I'd like to show you uh, a PDF that he did. Uh, and I, that, that was the best way to do it. And it's going to take a little time to go through it, but I think it'll be of value to you. Uh, I want you to get a, a skim of it. I think it's like 60 pages in the PDF or something. 30, no, it's 30-something pages, 60 images that he has documented. Uh, along with that, before I go to that, I want to say a couple of other things. And that is that the early church writings, Hermas, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, they all describe or affirm that it was a practice in the early church. I don't have any of those quotes here today, but that was, that's there. Tertullian spent the most time on it, and it's interesting what he was arguing was who it was for. And the argument that was happening in his day was, is this for married women or unmarried women? And that's the thing he was addressing. But it was an expected practice. It was the norm. It, there wasn't any question on that part of it. What I'd like for you to notice as we go through this is we've got all this history where it was practiced. And then I want to make three statements about it. I don't know if I have it on the screen. Actually, yes, I do. Let's go here. Since the early to mid-1900s, the loss of wearing the, have a loss of veiled women. The, the veiling practice stopped, especially during worship. And let's look at the progression. The practice lost meaning it became fashion or expectation only. People didn't understand why they were doing it. So there was a transition where they were doing it but not understanding why, and the churches then lost the practice. And we are in danger of the same thing. I've seen the same thing happen in my lifetime. I'm not very old. I don't think I'm very old. Some of you do. That's okay. But in the last 40 years, that's happened. In the last 25 years, I've seen that happen. People rapidly go from not understanding, just doesn't matter. Let me flip over to this PDF, and I will try to walk through this fairly quickly. This is an article. You can find it on Scroll Publishing's website, and you can read the text there. He tells his story of, uh, come on, I was wanting to scroll with this thing. There we go. It doesn't like my hand. Okay, I'll have to do it here. Uh, let's see, he, he just talks about, there we go, my mouse goes over to the other screen, pretty 
go again. Okay, we'll do it this way. We're going to get there. <clears throat> so some of these are a little hard to see. Uh, can you all see that in the back? This is probably one of the worst ones. But we start with uh, etchings that are in the catacombs, underground hiding places in Rome. That's where the, these first uh, images come from, from the two and three hundreds, uh, so early on in Christian history. And I'm going to go through these fairly quick. Uh, this is another one. You'll see the captions as we go. This one's not very clear, but once again, it's, all of these are veiled women. There's one that's up closer from the 300s. This is now going to the Middle Ages. And what you'll note, here's something else I want you to notice. These images depict women being covered in all walks of life, not just worship. This, them being covered was something that was just a, a daily practice. That's England, 1100s Europe, 1200s Europe. 1300s England, 1400s England, 1400 Germany, Europe, Italy. Now we're getting up to Reformation time. This looks like it's in a worship setting in Europe. Uh, towards the end, he does. Early on, he does not. Not these, er these early ones, he did not. So another thing that happened, you'll notice it right here. You notice how the, the veiling style changed there? This was in the 1400s in Europe. Uh, the cap style actually became uh, practiced. And it was, before then, it had been more of a loose flowing veil, but then a cap came into uh, use as well. And you'll see the variation. There's Lutheran, 1525. England. This is a picture out of the Martyr's Mirror, 1530s, a German Anabaptist. This is in Belgium. And this is uh, people working. This is in the daily routine of life. France. Belgium. Netherlands, here he talks about that. The cap type of covering replaced the hanging veil in Europe and America. So here's 1600 Europe, and there it's obviously more of a cap style. Netherlands, one tied under the chin in France. New England, and I don't know what's happening in this picture. It doesn't look very pleasant, but that's in France. Netherlands, England, Netherlands. I'm going to keep going. We're over half done. I want to get up to some of the more modern pictures. 1800s. You notice a change here? Here's where we're starting to get the fashion now. And what's happening is that ladies are no longer understanding why their heads were covered and it's becoming a thing of fashion. If you do research on that, it's interesting. You'll actually find hats with veils attached, and it was a very fashionable thing. 
England, getting kind of frilly here. Now, the bag is not, the sack is not the covering. <laughs> if you look underneath that, you'll see that there is a head covering. Here, once again, that's work. Got a pitchfork and a basket of goods of some sort, but they're wearing hats. It's, it was, they, were, they were covering. This, and it continues on. Here's 1820. This United States pictures. Here's back in France. England, 1870. This is United States, 1880. Brittany, that's on the coast of France. Now here we have a working woman in England, 1890. So now we're going 20th century. Boy, I'm glad you all don't wear that. That was the United States. There's a Russian immigrant in New York, 1920. 1929, United States. You see how it's going to more typical hat. Christian women in India, 1940. Now here's some of the more modern pictures. 1943. We have a few people here that were alive then or around then. I can't remember all your birth years. Lucille was living. This is within recent history. John was living then. Yeah. So 1943, that was a Lutheran church service. The women were wearing something on their head. The Episcopalians did as well. Roman Catholics did as well. This was at a confirmation. This is Presbyterians. Look at all those heads that are covered. That was 1938. Here's 1950, the Hutterites. Here is an Episcopalian confirmation. The girl has her head covered. 53, African-American Baptists. And this is something that uh, McLeod talked about. In their tradition, it had gone to hats. That, that was what they had in their recent history. Roman Catholic baptism. You see the mother's wearing something on her head. Congregationalist. The lady's got something there. I don't know what that is. Uh, now here, these are nuns in 1960. I think that's the last picture. I just wanted you to see that. I find that fascinating that that is the history of what has happened with the veiling. Uh, it was hist historically, it was just there. And it's more, a more recent phenomenon that we, we tend to go away from that. So I would like to do, um, yeah, let's do one more thing. I brought something along. Judson gave us a good illustration. I brought Sally along here this morning and tried to brush her hair out. I'm not a very good brusher of hair. But anyway, this is not... What I'd like to do is to read the text with the logic behind it. We have a woman's head. It talks about a woman's head could be shaven or shorn, meaning cut very short. We've got the hairs listed as a covering or something that needs to be covered, and we have the physical external covering that's there. So I'd like to just read uh, these verses, and I'd like to just demonstrate the logic behind how it's understood and what happens. So let's see how this goes. Uh, 
And maybe one of the questions you want to answer in this as you read it, it's one of the objections is the long hair is the covering or one of the other perspectives. If you read the passage as a whole, that doesn't work out so good, especially when you think about that man's supposed to have his head uncovered. If the hair is the covering, then we all need to get out our razors and cut them off uh, as men. If, that's not, if it, the hair isn't the covering, which it doesn't make sense as we read through it, there is a separate physical covering that's happening. Verse 15 says, But if the woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. And uh, so that's, that's what I'm trying to address and just look at the logic as you read through the text here. So is it only the hair that's the covering? Every man, verse 4, Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. So if I'd have the veil on my head, in this context, I would dishonor Christ. That's dishonorable. The man does not remove and put on his hair at will. So let's come now to the lady. Verse 5, But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is one and the same as if she was shaved. So now we have a bald-headed woman. So is this just, is this only the covering? Let's put it back on here. For if a woman is not covered, meaning we took the veil off, then let her be shorn. Then just cut it off. You see this, you follow the logic there? If she's not covered, we've still got hair on, then let her take her hair off. That's what he's saying. But if it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, and unfortunately there are a few women that go around bald-headed, I don't find it very becoming. Uh, this is much more glorious and becoming. But he says, if that's a shame for a woman to be shaven, shorn or shaven, then let her be covered. And when you read through and, and do this, do this in your mind. Follow the logic of it. The hair being the covering doesn't work. It does not fix what he's, what he's saying. So what does he mean in verse 15 where he says her hair is given her for a covering? My understanding is that it is, it is given to her as something that needs to be covered. It's a different word for covering than what is used earlier in the passage. Uh, and I'm not going to go into the description of that, but it's something that, in my understanding, needs to be put up, covered, the hair is her glory. And it's one of the reasons, the way we define what should be covered, that's a big discussion among some people. What should, is this a head covering? If you read some of the ancient texts, you'll find they covered the face as well. What's to be covered? My understanding is that the long hair is the glory of the woman, and that's primarily what ought to be covered. I think that there's different applications that can be acceptable there, but that is a, a bottom line for me. All right, real quick, I'm going to wrap this up. Uh, I do not have this on the screen. Yes, I do. Objections to be answered. That was for Corinthian culture. We already looked at that earlier. I want to make just a couple more comments uh, about that. 
And that is, we talked about how Paul was writing to the Corinthians and to all who in every place name the name of Christ. I just have one other, one additional question on that. If this is cultural, who decides what other part of Corinthians is cultural or any other part of the Bible for that matter? You know what the second half of Corinthians 11 is? How do we know that wasn't just cultural? Or pick, take your pick. I'm just saying, who's the arbitrator of that? And I'm going to say it's not cultural. It's God-ordained. It's God-inspired, and that's why we practice it. We already talked about verse 15. Uh, just a couple notes there. In verse 6, it says, also, it's denoting that there is a separate covering beyond the natural hair. Verses 5, 6, 7, and 13 specifically refer to that separate covering. If you understand hair as the covering, the rest of the passage does not make sense. Only 15 makes sense. And then the third thing, verse 16 says, we have no, if anyone wants to argue about this, if you want to fight about this, well, we don't have this custom. Some people say, well, that just means Paul was backing out of it and saying, okay, if you all object, that's fine, no big deal, I didn't mean it after all. But what's the logic of that? Why did he just devote 15 verses to describing it if he didn't really mean it? What was the point of putting it there if he's now just saying, oops, no big deal if you object? I think what he means there is he's saying, if you want to argue about it, that's your problem. The churches have this custom. We don't have deviation from it. It is universal. It is how it's practiced. It is how it's understood. That's what he's saying. There is, we have no such custom. He's saying we're not arguing about it. It's just a fact. Here it is. And he does it very kindly, but he's very straightforward that that is how uh, it is. So I want to summarize here real quickly. The veiling is a physical covering. We have 1,900 years of history to support a physical covering. We have the teaching in 1 Corinthians uh, as a basis of that. We are ambassadors for Christ. We function in His line of authority, and we display His glory, not ours. And the Christian woman's veiling is a part of that display or that giving glory and saying, God, I'm on your side. I'm going to do it your way. We're out of time. I hope this can be an encouragement and a blessing to you. If there's other people in that you would like to have listened to it, uh, I asked Sean to catch a video recording as well, so that should be available for people who missed it, and uh, hopefully the screenshots will show up on that. So thank you all for listening. May God bless you as your ambassadors for him and live and work in his line of authority. Let's pray. God, we come to you and we thank you for your goodness and your grace. Sometimes we don't understand exactly what all you mean and how we're to live. But I thank you for the example, the teaching of Scripture, the example of many centuries of believers who have faithfully followed you. And I pray that we would do that well. We would do it graciously with people who may not have the information or understanding, and that we would continue to point them to you 
Oh God, it's our heart's cry that people come to know you and that they would join your kingdom and walk with you. So bless the remainder of our service. In the name of Jesus, amen.